Good morning. We're glad you joined us. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 15. Easter Sunday is only a couple of weeks away, and we're marching to the resurrection of Jesus. And I think that's very important right now with everything that's going on in our world. Every day we wake up, we hear about people who are infected and they're dying. And we need to know and we need to be introduced to the one who conquered death, the one who gives new life. But before there can be a resurrection, there must first be a death. And I know some of you may be thinking, I've I've just heard enough of this this week. I just don't want to hear any more. But that's why the death of Jesus is so important for us to understand. Because Jesus took our place. Jesus took our death. Just as he took Barabbas' place on the cross, Jesus, Jesus took our place as well. One of the positives I think that we're seeing right now in our world, and you guys may have seen it as well, is, is how much people are serving. They're sacrificing themselves and we have a team of people right here in this church, and, and they want to go around and help people who are more susceptible to the coronavirus and want to keep them safe, and they'll help them getting groceries and getting their pharmaceuticals and other things because they believe it's more important that if somebody's going to get it, for them to get it than to, for someone else that they love. This last week, and some of you may have seen this as well, something that was just really amazing. There's an 82-year-old, uh, or rather a 72-year-old Italian priest who literally gave his life for someone else. And it, he had the coronavirus. His church had bought him a ventilator, but he gave it to someone who was younger and someone he didn't even know, and it cost him his own life. And this was trending all over social media because we love to hear these stories of self-sacrifice. And believe it or not, when we hear that story, there's this one that we're talking about today. It is even more amazing because Jesus died a death that we could not die for someone else. Jesus died a different kind of death. It's an eternal death. Eternal death is what awaits all who remain in sin and disobedience. And it's not a very popular topic in our world today, let's be honest. But that's why the sacrifice of Jesus is so amazing and is so important for us. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God does things that are completely different, upside down from the way the world does them. And we're going to see that in our text this morning. Uh, I would like to uh, welcome all my friends who've joined me, these having familiar faces with us as we're having to uh, be... Uh, you know, online for a while, and I hope those of you who are out there, it, it uh, helps seeing some, some friendly faces around as well. So we're ready to, to get started, and um, let's read verses 16 through 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed 
and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. So Jesus is taken and he's led out, uh, actually led inside uh, the palace uh, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, under the Sisters of Zion convent is the traditional site where Jesus was mocked and beaten by Roman soldiers on the what's known as the Via Dolorosa, which is the Way of Sorrows. Many believe that this stone pavement is where Jesus stood, which has been the traditional site since the third century. But where it happened is not nearly as important as what happened. And what we see here is that the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God is being mocked. They bow down to him, these soldiers, and they hail him as king of the Jews. They, they place this, this crown of thorns and they press it upon him. They strip him naked and they put this robe of royal color over him. They anoint him basically with their spit, and they're going to enthrone him on a cross. Because to these soldiers, kings were something they lorded over others. They liked the authority that they had, and this Jesus that stood before them had, had to be laughable. I mean, here is this one, you know, he doesn't have an army. He, even his followers have all fled. Uh, He's standing before them and he's beaten. He's bloody. And ironically, they testify to something that was hidden to them. And that is Jesus is king. That this actually is his enthronement. But he's a different kind of king. He's not leading a rebellion, you know, for Israel and, and trying to set up a kingdom like King Saul. He is, you know, he's one who takes mockery and he takes the humiliation and he takes the beatings and he submits himself to a way of death. Worldly leaders in our culture around the world, these are people who ask other people to go and die, to die for them. But this king tells everyone, you stay and I'm going to go. And I'm going to die on behalf of all humanity. One day, God is going to turn their mockery into its reality. And the Apostle Paul will later tell us in the book of Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, uh, just this very thing. In fact, let's, let's read this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God of the Father. Very good. But first, he must be crucified. And so at this point, let's continue on in, in the Gospel of Mark 15. Let's read verses 21 through 32. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, 
to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Normally, one who was crucified, they carried their own cross beam to the site. So Jesus here, he is either too weak or he's too slow because of the brutal beating that he has taken. He is taken to a place that is called Golgotha or the place of a skull. The traditional site, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, is at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's located in the old city of Jerusalem. And its tradition goes back to the 4th century. But what I want you to notice here is that Mark doesn't give us a lot of details about the crucifixion. He doesn't tell us how Jesus felt. He doesn't tell us about the pain. He doesn't tell us about the ripping of flesh and everything else. What Mark centers on in this whole chapter is the humiliation, the shame of the cross. That's what he wants us to see more than anything else. Because it is a public spectacle. No king, much less a god, would dare be put on a cross and killed. This is scandalous. Even the Apostle Paul later on in, in, in writing and, and talking about uh, preaching the crucifixion of Jesus, he says it was a stumbling block to the Jews. And it was folly to the Gentiles. And I would say even in our culture today, there, there are those who still look at this and they just think this, this doesn't make sense because it goes completely upside down to the way of the world and to its philosophy of the world. And, it, and so Jesus here, we notice something else, that he doesn't take the wine that's mixed with myrrh. And it's like, well, what is that? That was a primitive narcotic. It was to help deaden the pain some. Jesus refuses it. He wants to be fully conscious when he is in the will of God. He has come to drink of the cup of the wrath of God, not of the cup of men. It was also customary for the executioners to take uh, these, some of these minor belongings of those being condemned and, and they could divide them up among themselves. And, and this is a prophecy. It's a prophecy being fulfilled. It comes from the book of Psalm, chapter 22, which is a messianic psalm. And there in Psalm 22 and verse 18, uh, it, it shows us and it gives us this very scene to help us to understand that even though Jesus, we see him here in his humiliation, that he is in the absolute will and obedience of the Father. Now, his garments have played a very important role as we've uh, gone through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you remember, it, it represented his power to heal. Back in chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, there was the woman with the issue of blood, and she thought, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, and he, she does, and, and she's healed. And then the very next chapter, it tells us about 
others who just rushed out to Jesus and they thought if we could just touch his clothes, that we, they could be healed. And they were. And then there was the transfiguration in chapter 9. And in there in verse 3, we see Jesus' garments became as white as light. And it represented, it was symbolic of, uh, of, his, of his glory, of his majesty. But here, what we've read so far, it, it tells us a different tale of his garments. That, you know, the soldiers have stripped him naked of his own garments and placed on this, this robe of purple. And now here we see that they are at the foot of the cross where Jesus is dying and they're gambling. They're gambling over his clothes. And the powerful healer and the transfigured son of God, he dies publicly humiliated as a human being. But notice where he is. He is in the middle of two robbers. And I want you to notice Mark's words again um, in this text. It says, one on his right and one on his left. Now that's very significant. Because it's almost the identical words when James and John came to Jesus and they said in chapter 10, verse 37, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left hand when you come in glory. And if you know that account, Jesus told them, you don't know what you're asking for. And he also said, those places have already been reserved. And now Mark tells us who they were reserved for. They were reserved for two criminals. And, and where is James and John? If you go back to chapter 10 and you look at verses 38 and 39, Jesus told, you know, they're saying, well, look, we can drink of the, the cup that you drink of. We can be baptized in the baptism you're baptized with, but they're nowhere to be found because they fled. They've left. And it's more prophecy, more prophecy being fulfilled. And this one comes from Isaiah chapter 53, which is a messianic, uh, a messianic, uh, poetry of the suffering servant king. And it says he poured out his soul to death, but listen to this next part, and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessory, intercession for the transgressors. And we look at this, we're like, why is Jesus between these criminals? What has he done? And he tells us, he, he tells us here in Mark exactly what his crime was. Because they had it on a place card. They would have, they would have had it as it, maybe even as he was walking, uh, maybe uh, placed on the cross. And that is this, king of the Jews. That's the charge. He's king of the Jews. We keep going through there and we see the Sanhedrin, they've mocked him. The Roman soldiers, they've mocked him. But there's other people doing it. Jesus is now on the cross. And it says people were passing by. That they were hurling insults to Jesus. Chief priests, the uh, scribes, they show up, they start mocking Jesus. And if that's not humiliating enough, it then tells us that the two criminals on each side of Jesus, they begin to, to give these harsh criticisms towards Jesus. And once again, it's a fulfillment from Psalm 22. This time, verse 7, where he says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. That's insults. They wag their heads. They taunt Jesus. They tell him, look, save yourself. Come down from the cross. They say, look, you were able to save others, but you can't save 
yourself. And they don't know this Jesus at all, do they? Because this Jesus didn't come into our world to save himself. He came or to, uh, to you know, save his own life. He came to give his life. And what he says in chapter 10 in verse 45, Jesus said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Because this is not what they would have done. Had they had the power to, to be on a cross and, and in their humiliation, they would have come off of the cross and they would have wiped out everybody who made fun of them. And we may be tempted when we read this, we think, Jesus, I wish you would just come down from the cross and I mean just, just tear into them. But Jesus says, that's not, if you're followers of mine, that's not how this works. He says, I'm asking you too, if you remember earlier, he says, you too are to take up your cross. You're to take up a cross, not come down from a cross as we deny ourselves and we follow Jesus. Now, Martin uses an interesting word in verse 29. Uh, it's those who are passing by. It says they, they derided him. The original Greek means they blasphemed. Now, let that simmer for a moment, because if you remember back in chapter 14 in verse 64, is the high priest. And what he accused Jesus of was blasphemy. And suddenly Mark has us here contrasting the two, and we're to ask ourselves, who is the true blasphemers? Is it Jesus? Or is it those who are mocking Jesus? Which one is, is in the will of God? I think that's the real question that comes from this. So Jesus, he, he looks defeated. His enemies think that they have won. I mean, this is the Jesus who said, you know, that he can, um, you know, tear down the temple and he can rebuild it in three days. And they're looking at this Jesus who's up on this cross and he's just battered and bruised. He's half dead. And it's laughable to them. But we know that a surprise is coming. We've been given more clues as we've gone through this morning to help us understand this enthronement of Jesus that we started with last week. Once again, we see these phrases, King of the Jews. This time it even says King of Israel is part of this as well. The soldiers, they basically are showing an inauguration scene. And then you have the criminals and they parallel with James and John. And don't forget what they ask. They say, can we sit at your right and left hand when you come in glory? The cross is the glory of Jesus. This is his enthronement. And this can't be overstated. But what does it mean that Jesus is king? Having a king has not been very popular in America, right? <laughs> uh, Revolutionary War, we think in terms of tyrants. But that's why it's important for us to see the suffering servant king. Because he absolutely turns this thing on its head. Because when we say King Jesus, we're talking about someone who was perfect and righteous, uh, a king who loved the world and gave up his whole life for them to save them. He is the king of kings. He is the king over all creation. I want, to, I want to, uh, us to hear Romans chapter 1 three and four at this time. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. All right. So we know that he is the king of all creation. He is supreme. He is superior in every way. Um, but sin tainted creation. You know, uh, it, it includes in all of creation. That includes humanity. Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden to be their own lords, to be their own kings uh, over others. They abandoned their role, their relationship with God and His kingdom. And this cycle we see that happened there in the garden, it just continues. And, and as much as we try, we're not able to restore creation. But Jesus, through His perfect obedience, He has provided a way for creation, all of creation, to be restored. And, and His kingdom has already come. It's here in this world. We can be citizens of this kingdom. And I know all of these that are around the table with me this, this morning, these are all a part of that kingdom. And, and all of us, we're, we're really, the Bible describes us as foreigners in this world. Uh, that we as a congregation, as a group of people, and even those of you who are out here this morning, that, that we are a colony of the heavenly kingdom right here in this world. But we also know that the kingdom has not come in its completion. And we long for that day. I'm going to read just a few things from Romans chapter 8. And he begins by saying, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not, worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is that which is coming. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation has, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we're saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So don't lose sight of reality. Don't lose sight of what's really to come. And until Jesus does come again, He has sent to us His Spirit to help us in these times that we're in right now and these weaknesses and, and our fears and things of that sort. I'm going to finish up a few more of Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is, what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, and those who are called according to His purpose. This world is not our home. A new heaven and a new earth is coming with the coming of our Lord and the second coming. And, and all things will be restored. And until that time, we continue to live as Jesus Christ, as our King on earth, 
in this upside-down values that he has taught us to live. I want to thank all of you who've joined us this morning, and I want to thank my guests who've come and be a part of this as well. And I hope this is a wonderful and blessed Sunday for you.